1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Teresa Adu about her new book, Selling Anti-Slavery, Abolition and Mass Media in Antebellum America. Welcome to the podcast, Teresa. Thank you so much, Christina. I'm really glad that you're here. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure thing. Um, I teach at Vanderbilt University in the English and American studies programs where I specialize in 19th century literature and culture. I grew up in New England, but have spent most of my life, um, or my adulthood at least in the South. Um, and at first it seemed really strange to be writing a book on anti-slavery from my location in middle Tennessee. But the more I researched, I realized that actually, um, East Tennessee took uh, the early lead in establishing anti-slavery societies and newspapers. One of the earliest anti-slavery papers, for example, was published in Jonesboro, Tennessee in 1820. So I began to, as I learned local history, kind of be reminded of how complex the geographical terrain is um, in terms of when we invoke terms like anti or pro-slavery. And it really prompted me at the beginning of the project to really see the anti-slavery movement less as a monolith and more as a a movement with a lot of local variants. Um, So even though I still think of myself as, in many ways as a New Englander, um, it was very interesting to write this book from uh, the perspective of the South, or at least my own location in the South.
1: So this is a really fascinating book, and it's got a lot of complexity to it. So before we get into the interview, could you give us your your elevator pitch of what this book is, your your brief synopsis. Sure.
0: Um, I always say to my graduate students, you don't really know what your project's about until you can sum it up in one sentence to your neighbor um, who's, you know, not a specialist in the field. And I guess I would say um, in a nutshell, it's a book about anti-slavery media and how that media created cultural and social change.
1: And so that leads to my next question, which is what inspired you to write this? Sure. Um, I often think about how I get from one project to another.
0: And since this is a second book, um, I think mostly about the through line that came out of my first book. So my first book was about the American Gothic. And in that book, I argued that it was a genre that was haunted by history, especially the histories of race and slavery. And I wanted to continue with my second book, Thinking About Those Histories of Race and Slavery. And um, I thought about it, you know, there were a lot of different ways in which I was thinking about how to sort of write a second book. Um, but I kind of settled on um, pretty quickly thinking about the anti-slavery movement and the broad um, Uh, swath of media that it produced and wanting to know more about that particular movement as a way to get into the larger kind of questions about race and slavery in my period. I was also um, really interested in writing um, a more interdisciplinary book. So my first book, Is really focused on the literature of the American Gothic. And while it was engaged with a historical context, mostly I used secondary sources to kind of um, uh, create the context for my literary readings. And I really wanted to do um, more primary historical research. Um, not that I'll ever be a historian um, per se, but more interdisciplinary in bringing my literary methodology together with a more historical methodology. And in part, that grew out of um, my interest in print culture studies and history of the book. Um, which was a methodology I wasn't able to really um, use in the first book. So I really wanted to kind of center the second book around those interests as well. And so between trying to um, kind of continue the through line of the thematic interest in race and slavery from the first book, but kind of um, challenge myself with a more um, ambitious methodological agenda, Um, I came up with this um, more interdisciplinary, um, primary primary historical kind of mode um, in the second book. And I guess I would also say the book um, is really kind of formed around this larger question, um, which continues um, to be something I think all literary people often think about which is how culture can help to create social change. Um, And I thought the anti-slavery movement was a really wonderful case study to explore that question through. So I think of uh, my focus on anti-slavery as more thinking of it as a cultural project rather than a political project. And maybe that still differentiates me from the historians um, who often look at it, you know, in terms of it's, You know, political role. Um, I'm really thinking of the anti-slavery movement and the kind of cultural role that it played during the antebellum period.
1: And the book makes the case for the anti-slavery movement centrality to nineteenth-century media history. And to get at that media history, you had to go into the archives. And the the back matter lists so many archives that you went to. How many years did this project take?
0: more than I would like to say, um, let's just say a a long time. And I was doing it, you know, simultaneously, um, you know, with having young children. um, So that also um, became, um, you know, a a slowing down process. So, um, you know, I would go to archives and and, um, as I could. And also when I started the project, Um, digital archives were not as robust as they currently are. So, um, you know, now when I think about if I had started the project today, rather than say a decade ago, um, that, um, I would have probably just gone right into the digital archives and started working from them. And I really wonder what the project would have looked like or how it would have been different because of that. having started in the actual physical archives and kind of working myself out inductively from those archives, I think shaped um, what I found, shaped the argument in ways that I don't think if I had just gone into the digital archives, it would have been the same. So I often give this um, project to my graduate students in my print culture classes. I will ask them to look at something in a very physical, material way in an archive, and then also ask them to do something similar in a digital archive and to compare and contrast what they got from each archive. And um, while there are many pluses to the digital archive, and I don't think I could have... Um, you know, checked all my sources in as an efficient way, if I didn't have access to digital archives at the, you know, in the final stages of the book, um, I think I would have missed a lot if I hadn't started in the physical archive. I mean, one example is, um, I was at the Boston Public Library doing some research, and they were having you know, just a small exhibit out in, in the kind of ante room um, into the archive, into the reading room. And it is in, you know, behind glass in that particular exhibit. Again, not really for public display. It would only be if you were going into the reading room that you would even see this exhibit. Um, the coin box that is on the cover of the book and also kind of forms the um, example of my introduction. Um, this anti-slavery coin box that has a picture of the kneeling slave on the front and which was used as a kind of fundraising um, means that people would put money into the coin box each week um, before it was collected. Um, As soon as I saw that coin box, I knew that that was what my that, that was going to be crucial to my book. And that really kind of in many ways summed up what I was after in my book. But if I hadn't have actually been in the archive and seen it, I wouldn't have known to look for it. You know, it's not like I would have looked up in the catalog anti-slavery coin box. Um, there are lots of examples like that in the research that I did. Um, another favorite example that I have is of um, an anti- anti-slavery window blind um, and this was just like a hand-painted window blind for a New York City parlor that an artist did um, in the 1830s um, and kind of sold. And the only way I even came across that was by going page by page through um, the anti-slavery newspaper, The Emancipator, and my eye just falling upon this advertisement for an anti-slavery window blind. If I were going into the digital version of that newspaper and searching anti-slavery window blind, perhaps it would have come up. But again, I wouldn't have known to search for that. I wouldn't have known that that was something that was being produced. So, um, while part of me, you know, bemoans, you know, how long it took to to go through the physical archives that I went to, um, I also um, try to. Um, uh, You know, remind myself that um, so much of what I found, I probably wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. So, in terms of the archives I went to, I again, I was trying to train myself as a historian, I was a literary critic. I really didn't know how to do history. So, that was also part of the process of writing this book is teaching myself how to do this type of methodology. So, I just started. going, uh, I started the first, the first archive I went to was the Boston Athenaeum, which I thought would be a small enough archive that I could sit and read through everything and get a sense of the whole, just from this small sampling. And, um, the librarians there were really wonderful. They, I think, got tired of me asking, um, for them to bring me things and just finally let me sit in their vault for a few weeks and just read through everything that was there. And that just gave me a nice snapshot overview of the kinds of things I might find, the kinds of things the anti-slavery movement was producing. And from there, I then kind of went city to city. Um, I had a wonderful fellowship at the library company in Philadelphia, which was also really instrumental, um, not only to being able to get a really great sense of the the breadth of what the anti-slavery movement produced, but also have access to really wonderful librarians and archivists um, who could help guide me through um, those collections. And so when I was in Philadelphia, I did not only the library company, but also went to Swarthmore, who's got a great um, library, you know, that the Quakers um, uh, produced, as well as the Pennsylvania Historical Society. And then I went back to Boston a lot of times to the Boston Public Library, the Massachusetts Historical Society, the American Antiquarian Society, as well as to New York. Um, and also spent some time in the Midwest archives. Oberlin has a wonderful anti-slavery archive. Because um, I wanted to see if I would find things that were different in, say, the what would then have been in the 19th century, the more Western archives. I can't say that I did find a lot that was different, per se, between what I looked at in New England versus what I looked at, you know, in the Midwest. Um, but in every archive, you would find different editions or, or different copies. And some copies, for example, I'm thinking here of the American Anti-Slavery Almanac, which was just a small pamphlet. Um, and sometimes you it would have a cover And sometimes it wouldn't, and it just depended upon what that edition was that you would find in the archive. And the covers tended to have a lot of really useful information, not only in terms of the pamphlet itself and how much it cost and how where and how well it circulated, but also a lot of advertisements for other texts too. So it was a lot of just trying to sift through and sort through a lot of material and you know, kind of gather as much as I could to get, you know, um, a really um, expansive view of what they were producing. Um, and then after that, um, kind of going back via microfilm or or then later on through through digital archives and trying to kind of sift out what I wanted to kind of write on, what items and objects I wanted to put together with each other and how to start to make sense of it. So it's the two stage process, the finding of the materials and then uh, trying to make sense of it and, and then weave it together into a larger argument.
1: And to figure out where all of these artifacts that you found really came from, why were there so many? How are they all being produced? You really studied the American Anti-Slavery Society's business model, if you will how they earned money, how they um, recruited members, how they went out into the community. And your findings about that are really fascinating. Can you share with listeners how the American Antiquarian Society did these things to raise the money that was used to create all of these artifacts that you found, which were things that members of the society were purchasing?
0: Right. So um, what really, I think, set anti-slavery apart was the way in which it um, organized itself. So it was really a media enterprise and it was organized like a corporation. Now, corporations didn't emerge until later in the 19th century, but it was a business enterprise that was formed in the ways in which we imagine a kind of modern corporation. There was a kind of federal or federated structure with with an executive committee located in New York City um, that itself, the members of the executive committee had their own kind of um, um, particular things that they would do. One would be the editor, one would be the secretary. And then the managerial hierarchy would then extend out to the state societies and then the local societies. I almost think of it as a kind of franchise model um, that we have today where each um, local society would be independent on its own, but it would be kind of branded and also guided by um, the um, national um, society that was headquartered in New York City. And many of the um, members of the uh, executive board in New York City were themselves businessmen. Um, So they had this, um, I think, very well-organized structure that they could then use to not only produce media, but then distribute it um, out to their auxiliaries and then bringing money from the auxiliaries back into the central system. And it was modeled on, it's important to say they didn't come up with this on their own, it was modeled on um, the evangelical movement, who also had a very similar kind of quasi-corporate model. Um, and many of the members or the leaders of the anti-slavery movement in the 1830s had come out of the evangel- evangelical movement. Um, and so they were able to kind of appropriate and adopt many of the methods that they had learned in that movement.
1: And you touched a few mo- moments ago on this amazing box that is the um, front cover of your book, the image of it's on the front cover of your book. And then in the book, you, you provide this brilliant analysis of why this box was such an important marketing tool and was so crucial to their fundraising. Can you talk about that for the listeners?
0: Sure. So this coin box that's on my front cover was produced by the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society for um, their plan, which was called the Weekly Contribution Plan. So basically, there was always some sort of fundraising plan in place with the American Anti-Slavery Society. They understood they had to raise money to support their lectures and produce the media. So um, this box was meant to be put on your you know parlor mantle um, meant to kind of be out in your main room to remind yourself to give money to the anti-slavery society, but also um, to remind your yourself what you were working for um, so it was both a treasury you know something to collect money and um, you know the organization would come by once a week and, and pick up your money and you were supposed to put your money in on on Sundays. So, you know, kind of tied to the kind of, um, giving, uh, you know, church giving as well. Um, but it was also, um, this kind of domestic material object, which, you know, tied into your, your larger parlor objects. And then also it has both an image of the kneeling slave on the front, as well as a poem and some scriptures. So it sort of served as a tract. Um, already converting yourself and any member or friend who would come to your parlor as well um, with words um, and images mm-hmm. to um, kind of adopt the cause, and then finally on the back it gives sort of um, the steps by steps of how to organize yourself through this plan. Um, so it was also kind of organizational tool. So I love the ways in which it sort of. Um, in a nutshell, kind of hits at all the different ways in which the organization was both trying to use these objects to further organize itself, as well as to convert um, newcomers, as well as to kind of reinforce those that were already converted, and then feed that all back into producing money that can produce more types of objects like this that could then further convert others. So it's a a wonderful circuit.
1: (laughs) And you talk in the book about uh, the brilliance of it being a box you can just put pennies in because it creates a sustainable model rather than soliciting large donations that maybe people can't keep up with. There's kind of this cultural sense that, of course, you can at least put a few pennies in and you can continue to do that. And that this created this sustained revenue. And then they had actual... People who would go out and regularly um, collect the money from the boxes, they would sort of empty out the box and hand it back to the person. Do you do you know where these women who were deployed to go collect the money?
0: Yes, there's another plan that was kind of uh, came out of this plan. This was called the weekly contribution plan. And then the National Society picked that up and created what they called cent a week plan, which was an even cheaper plan that really just said you're just supposed to give a cent a week, whereas the weekly contribution plan, you know, suggested that you could give more than that. Um, and with the cent a week plan, it was definitely uh, women workers who, women organizers who would. Not only they had a little collector's card that they would um, write down each person's name and go around each week and put a little dot on, under that month, four dots to a month, um, to mark whether you had given your scent. So they not only were the kind of... Um, You know, labor force of the organization. But they also, besides collecting money, would also then circulate tracks. So both of these plans, the weekly contribution plan and the cent a week plan, had uh, tracks that went with them. um, So that when you gave the money, you would get a tract back. And that tract would be, in some sense, a material manifestation of what that money was meant to produce. Um, and that tract would further convert the person in the household and tell that person how to convert others. Um, and sometimes it wasn't just the tract that went with the plan, but um, you could circulate if you had finished reading something already in your house and you wanted to kind of pass it along. The uh, worker, uh, the collector was also sort of a lending library who helped to circulate tracts amongst. Um, the population and not just one-to-one as it were. So um, it's a fascinating way to both raise money, reinforce what that money is standing in for, and also further circulate the tracks um, that that money is producing.
1: And in the book, you talk about the American anti Slavery Society, and you call it a media powerhouse that manufactured abolition as a compelling brand And you also refer to it as a propaganda machine. And the propaganda being these tracts and almanacs and reading material and literature that that they were creating to educate the North about slavery. And one of the things that they made for many years was was the almanac. Um, And you talk about how almanacs were already a part of the culture. So people were familiar with what an almanac was and, and did for people. But they created an anti-slavery version of that. And you saw many of them in the archives. Can you tell listeners about this specific kind of almanac that was created by this society?
0: Sure. So a lot of what the anti-slavery movement was brilliant at doing was picking up genres that were already popular and adapting them to their own message. So the almanac next to the Bible was the most important text in the 19th century. It was the most read text as well. And like the Bible was in every household and consulted daily. Um, So you can't really imagine a better vehicle to then propagate the anti-slavery ideas through something that's already in the household, a form people already know and are very familiar with, um, and one that... um, They can just um, shift towards their own um, sentiments or ideas. Um, The Almanac was also a great way for them to produce the facts of slavery. So again, in the 1830s, when all of this really started, Northerners didn't know a lot about slavery. Slavery was this distant thing that they heard bits and pieces about. So one of the first things the anti-slavery movement had to do was to kind of create um, almost a a list of facts um, that, you know, said what slavery was. And in doing that, transformed slavery into a social problem that needed to be solved. And so they produced a lot of data. In order to achieve that. And the Almanac, as an informational genre, was very data driven. And so it was a great place for the anti slavery movement to um, put its facts into as well. Um, and then finally, the Almanac was cheap print. Um, and so it was easy to produce a lot of them um, relatively cheaply and circulate them widely. Um, and then also, it was a renewing print. So, every year there was a new almanac. So, it, it was a genre that allowed the anti-slavery movement to not only solidify the facts of slavery, but also to uh, circulate them broadly and widely into, you know, um, everyday working households um, and not just some elite, elite space.
1: And the almanacs often contained calendars, if you will. They had a, the days for each month. They, there'd be a page for each month of the year and the almanacs would have an illustration, much like a calendar today has an illustration for each month. But these almanacs that were created by the American Anti-Slavery Society had very specific types of, um, illustrations that they use each month. And you have over 75 illustrations in this book, many of which are taken from those almanacs. Can you give listeners a sense of how the um, images that were included in the almanacs were important to go along with the the factual presentation so that they could give people a visual of what was happening and also work on sympathy? Yes. So,
0: Um, It's important to remember that the rise of the image really happened in the 1830s as well. While print culture is really, I think, the center of the media production of anti-slavery, they were very much interested in what the um, image could do for their argument as well. Um, So they produced many images um, and were interested in appealing to the eye as well as the head. And the almanac really brings these two um, modes together in an attempt to both appeal to the head through these facts and to the eye and through the eye to the heart um, by also including images. Um, Often, you know, just woodblock images, um, not anything super refined, but with each month of the calendar having an image plus, you know, a list of facts. And often those facts and the image would work together to simultaneously uh, reinforce each other. Um, That it allowed for this kind of, um, not only reinforcing each other, but also this kind of multi-way into the argument, as it were. And I think that really sets um, the anti-slavery movement and their almanacs apart, was their use of the visual, as well as their use of trying to make each page um, be um, coherent in and of itself, that they were always trying to corroborate and coordinate things um, because that's how you produce fact, right? You repeat the same thing over and over again. It all adds up to one single point in anti-slavery's case that slavery slavery is cruel. Um, And whether you're telling that through statistics or you're telling that through showing um, an enslaved person being whipped by an enslaver, um, those two things all say the same thing. And that's what they were so wonderful at, which is sort of um, both um, using these kind of multimodal strategies, but then making sure these multimodal strategies always kind of integrated together and cohere together to sort of sing the same song as as it were.
1: When I was looking at these, uh, images and illustrations that you've included in the book and how graphic and emotional they are, I was thinking about how these were in homes with multi-generations and obviously children in them and how today when the media presents difficult images, parents don't seem to know how to explain them to children or if children should be allowed to see them. Did you have any sense of how, um, these were presented to children? Um, in some of the
0: almanacs, there are whole pages that are, um, addressed specifically to children. Um, and we'll talk about, you know, what happens to, um, enslaved children, um, to really try to elicit, you know, um, children's identification and response, or how would you feel if you were sold away from your parents? So there was a direct appeal to children. There was no sense of protecting them. And the anti-slavery movement had um, periodicals, for example, The Slave's Friend, which was addressed specifically and made specifically for children. So they really understood children as the generation that was most important to reach, that it was children who would, in some sense, convert their parents, not vice versa.
1: And in addition to the Almanac, the Anti-Slavery Society also had other publications, notably the Slave Narratives. But the Slave Narratives that you discuss in the book are perhaps not the ones that listeners uh, are familiar with or what they would have um, read during their um, own educational These were very specifically crafted narratives meant to do specific um, tasks for the anti-slavery society in support of sort of the dominant message that they were trying to create. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. I mean, one of the reasons um, that I wrote this book was to de-center Uncle Tom's Cabin which is kind of the placeholder for anti-slavery media when we talk about it in the 19th century, Um, as if, if we know Uncle Tom's Cabin, we know anti-slavery media. And I'm really trying in the book to sort of show that Uncle Tom's Cabin was the apex of anti-slavery media, not its, you know, kind of original form. That it was really the 20 years leading up to um, Uncle Tom's Cabin that, that allowed Uncle Tom's cabin to be the kind of breakthrough form that it was. Similarly, for the slave narrative, we read um, Frederick Douglass's narrative or Harriet Jacobs' narrative, and they stand in for a much larger, more complex and broader genre. I think in um, the um, documenting the American South North American slave narrative database, which is free to everybody online, and which contains all the slave narratives published during the antebellum period. There are 80 slave narratives, and yet we only read one or two. Um, So, my hope is that um, in talking about how the slave narrative came to be through this institutional context of the anti-slavery movement, that it will encourage people to, to read more broadly in this genre. But the slave narrative that I talk about specifically, the narrative of James Williams, hasn't even really even made it into the genre. It was um, basically discredited in the 1830s. And because of that, um, many scholars just discredited it as well. It's only very recently that it's been accepted um, that it is actually um, a slave narrative and not um, a fictional fictionalized um, text. So um, going back to this kind of lost origin story of the slave narrative with the narrative of James Williams, I talk about what the slave narrative can provide for the anti-slavery movement. So if you think about the Almanac, even with its more graphic, emotional images as providing a lot of data and facts, one of the ways in which the anti-slavery movement, besides images wanted to reach the heart was through kind of personal storytelling, um, eyewitness accounts of the enslaved person. Um, the only problem with that is that the enslaved person in the 19th century was always considered um, an unreliable narrator um, as typified um, by southern slaveholders who always said slaves were liars, etc so bringing this kind of individual eyewitness personal account into the argument had both its pros and that it was able to kind of um, activate the argument through this kind of personal point of view, but also had its negatives in that it could be easily discredited since the enslaved narrator um, didn't have high cultural standing. Um, so trying to negotiate that problem um, through the publication of this once slave narrative, the narrative of James Williams is what I talk about in that section of the book.
1: And that led to them coming up with a different solution. They they felt they they didn't have uh, enough hard data to deal with the accusations that were made against Mr. Williams' memoir. So they, they had to sort of leave it and go in a different direction. Um, and as you said, that sort of left it to be buried by uh, scholars and and historians who are looking for slave narrative. So it's wonderful that you've put it in the book and documented for everyone how to find it and to begin to work with it and put it back where it belongs. Their solution at the time, though, when they were pivoting, was to come up with a new book. And that book was called Slavery As It Is. Can you tell listeners about the creation of this new publication that they were going to disseminate and, and its content and, and its purpose? Sure.
0: So, when they produced the narrative of James Williams, which was the first slave narrative, the American Anti-Slavery Society kind of, you know, put their weight behind and said, you know, kind of put their their stamp on. Um, They were kind of all in on that slave narrative. Um, They were circulating it far and wide. It reached Europe. It reached Congress. Um, It was hawked on the streets of New York. But then immediately... Within just a few months of it coming out, the um, there were southern detractors saying, you know, it's got places and people wrong, and and basically undermining the credibility of the text. So rather than defend James Williams, which is itself a pseudonym, um, they um, decided just to withdraw the text altogether. But in doing that, they were so kind of um, worried that this slave narrative had in some sense undercut their larger argument. They decided to counter this with a kind of um, ironclad fact, checked text, which we know now as uh, slavery as it is, which some have called the Bible or the encyclopedia of the anti-slavery movement. It was the bestseller before Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Stowe even says she slept with it under her pillow when she was writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, or she had it in her work basket. Anyway, she references the fact that You know, it was the touchstone text for Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this text is almost unreadable. It's just lists and lists of facts um, in microscopic print, um, as if to chalk as much proof into one text as humanly possible in order to count this problem of James Williams. Um, And the key, um, evidence that's used in that text are excerpts from runaway slave holders, uh, from runaway slaves. So um, enslavers would put in, you know, southern newspapers, advertisements for their runaways, which described scars um, or other identification marks um, that could help find um, the slave. Um, And these um, runaway slave ads are really just um, full of all the cruelties and brutalities that slavery produced. But because they are written from the slaveholder's point of view, um, they can't really be undermined by the slaveholder himself. So they were a kind of ironclad piece of evidence. And so um, Theodore Weld, along with his wife and sister-in-law, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, went through thousands and thousands and thousands of Southern newspapers to cull all of these examples of um, slavery, of slavery's brutality, and then just kind of give it to you one after another, after another. Um, and it then became this argument about um, how cruel and horrible slavery is. And it was so airtight that um, it couldn't really be challenged. Um, And that is the text that was produced to counter the problem of James Williams.
1: And beyond creating print texts and these um, coin collection boxes, they moved into having these um, anti-slavery fairs. And this is crucial to part of your thesis, which is that they were selling anti-slavery. And these markets were held at Christmas time. They were put on by female auxiliaries and they were literally selling anti-slavery objects. You could get a pincushion or a sugar bowl with an image of a slave in shackles and you could take it home um, and you could gift them or a holiday gift for Christmas or New Year's to your friends and family. Um, were these objects that you were able to hold and see when you were in the archives?
0: Some of them were. Um, at Swarthmore they had the pincushion and the um sugar bowl. Um, but most of them were only really available to me through the copious reports of these fairs where they would list all the items that they sold. Um so while m- most of what I'm writing about in the book is is popular um, media and hence more ephemeral in nature, um, the material objects I would say were the most ephemeral and difficult to um, kind of come across. Not things that people saved per se. You know, a kind of hand woven pot holder that says any holder but a slave holder, um, and a lot of the objects um, were. Um, Yeah, they just wouldn't have lasted this long or nobody would have thought to save them, I guess, you know, because they were kind of domestic material objects. They had a kind of lower um, status, as it were. Um, But the women who organized these fairs, who who manned these fairs, who basically created this... probably the longest organization. When I think about the American Anti-Slavery Society, it it split um, into warring factions in 1840. But the Fairs really ran from the beginning in the 1830s all the way to the end in the 1860s um, without a break. Um, So that organizational structure was really crucial to um, not only the selling part, which I'll talk about in a minute, but also to the fundraising part. It was women's work and, and the money raised by these fairs that really bankrolled the movement from start to finish. Um, so when these objects were, you would have at the fairs everything from these kind of handmade objects to much more, um, luxurious objects that were imported from Europe. Um, so drawing in the kind of transatlantic female connections. Uh, Women from Great Britain, especially, would send boxes um, of luxury or foreign objects over to Boston ahead of, say, for example, the Boston Fair. Um, So, some objects you couldn't otherwise get in the States, you could get at the anti-slavery fair. So, the fair both allowed the anti-slavery message to be propagated through, again, these everyday domestic material objects, as well as for that message to get kind of connected to and attached to um, the kind of higher class fashionable and foreign objects um, that um, made the um, Boston Fair in particular a kind of elite um, market space.
1: And you talk about how some of the objects were about sentimental consumerism, and some of them were clearly about what you call refinement. And one of the objects that is in the refinement category were these special gift books that were sold at the anti-slavery fairs. Can you tell listeners about the gift book and why someone would want to purchase it and how it it, em- it was an emblem of refinement?
0: Sure. So the big urban fairs in Boston and Philadelphia Um, they produced gift books um, for the fairs. Well, really the Boston fair Um, and the gift book was meant to be a kind of souvenir of the fair. So almost in this small package, you would bring all the kind of cultural messages of the fair home with you. Um, And the gift book was an important genre in the nineteenth century. It was a um obviously a gift that was given at, at Christmas and new year's um so a sign of kind of friendship and um, a way of community building as it were but also um it was also a place um, at least in the uh, fairs edition of high art um literature as a kind of sign of taste again um The anti-slavery women were able to get um, literary donations from, you know, very prominent anti-slavery writers from England, Paris, etc. So, again, um, high art coming into the gift book. Um, And then the gift books themselves were beautiful art objects often bound um, in fine leather or stamped um, or, again, having some sort of image of the Liberty Bell gift book which was produced for the Boston Fair, had a picture of the Liberty Bell and and other sorts of engravings within the book. So um, it was a way for the anti-slavery movement to package itself as a kind of refined movement um, and to say to be anti-slavery is to be, um, you know, um, refined. Uh, Those two messages got connected together through um, the gift book. And also, you then brought it back home, and it sat again on your parlor table, much like the box, and was the sign, you know, to your friends and family that you were converted to anti-slavery. And so, there's a way in which anti-slavery became a marker of middle-classness, of um, refinement, of gentility, um, that, um, again, allowed it to go more mainstream in that way.
1: And the fares you could pay to get into... But then they developed these salons, which were these social events that you say uh, had social capital attached to them because you had to have an invitation and you had to bring the invitation to the door to get in. Can you talk about the development of these salons and the social capital for them and how that further created this idea of this proper white Northern middle class? Sure. So I think of the
0: fairs as both being markets where kind of commercial capital was produced and also um, um, as um, a parlor, you know, kind of larger version of the parlor, um, what in the 19th century was known as kind of an exhibition, Um, but also then its third instantiation was as a salon which um, Maria Weston Chapman, who organized the fairs in Boston, she had gone to spend some time in Paris. And so when she came back, she was kind of tired. It had been many you know, decades now of organizing these fairs every year. Um, and so decided she wanted to model it on um, the Parisian Salon. So again, bringing the foreign and the fashional into um, the anti-slavery movement as a kind of class marker. Um, and getting rid of the objects, which made it a kind of crass marketplace, and and instead really leaning into the other part um, that the fairs did, which was kind of a place of sociability, um, a place you would go to meet and greet. Um, fairs often had, um, you know, lectures, they had concerts, teas, soirees associated with it. By the time you get to the salon, that's all it is. It's just the social aspect. Um, And instead of it being open to all, it's by invitation only. You would um, present your invitation and instead of buying things and giving money directly through objects, you would um, politely Put your donation in a letter, um, again, encased in sentiment, and give that to um, the managers of the fair. And then you would attend the tea table um, of the person that invited you to the fair. Um, So it was all very genteel, very leaning into kind of uh, aristocratic, um, mannered um, society. Um, And again, re-inscribing what the gift books did kind of in a even more heightened way that to be anti-slavery was to be, um, of the very best society, um, of, um, a kind of, uh, white middle-class gentility, um, that, um, both because of anti-slavery's moral standing, but also that it had a particular social standing, which is pretty amazing if you think of how far the anti-slavery movement went from, you know, the 1830s where people were, you know, garrison was being tarred and, feather and feathered in the streets and, you know, um, it was a kind of um, outsider status you had as anti-slavery to, um, by the time the salons were happening in late 1850s, um, that suddenly anti-slavery was the kind of emblem of the most mannered society. Um, that's a pretty um, incredible transition if, if you step back to, to look at it.
1: And it is an amazing transition and their ability to get so much literature to so many people to educate them uh, was really remarkable. Um, but as you say, when when slavery ended, um, the society had to decide what to do because they were an anti-slavery society. And you You talk about how their legacy is complex, um that on the one hand, the society offers a model for how media can create change, but on the other hand, the American anti-slavery society's media forms became a vessel for other less equal agenda, and that less equal agenda really came to the forefront when they had to decide what, if anything, they were going to be after emancipation. Um, can you talk a bit about um, those? things that you you bring to the forefront in the conclusion.
0: Sure. Um, I think over the course of, of studying all of their media, I mean, the anti-slavery movement was a very complex movement. It had working class people in it, middle class people in it. Um it had black people in it, it had white people in it. Um so I'm really looking at it from the institutional point of view. Um and that and from the media, you know what the messages the media is producing, and the messages that come out of the media are very much about white selfhood. Um, it's really about um, the media is really speaking to a white audience. Um, the institutional media I'm speaking here of, um, and also helping to form a kind of white national as well as white middle class identity, and to do that they used the body of the enslaved person. Um, and often it was subjugating that body um, in service of this larger um, agenda um, of kind of white production. And it's that inequality that... that um, I'm not doubting that they weren't trying to produce Black emancipation, but that was their focus. And while, again media is complex, the movement's complex, and not all messages fall in line with this. The general message that's coming from the media is about freeing the enslaved person, but not about um, Black equality. And at the end, they're kind of infighting about should they continue, should they not um, kind of came down to maybe our job is done because now we have black emancipation. And then others like Frederick Douglass arguing, hey, this is just the beginning of what needs to happen. Now we need to fight for black equality, black citizenship, Um, that that kind of infighting gets at some of the questions about what the larger goals of the movement and the media were.
1: And so how did they leave it when it gets to 1870? What did they decide to do?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I I didn't do a lot of studying of what happened to anti-slavery media in the you know in the eighteen sixties and beyond. It was focused mostly on the eighteen thirties and how it started and how it, how it got produced at its at its beginnings. Um, but it pretty much petered out. The fairs petered out. They so they didn't have money. Um, the organizational structures, you know, you know, kind of had dissolved by that time as well. And they seemed more focused on trying to consolidate, um, their legacy, um, in some sense, you know, putting together archives, making sure, um, that, um, there were, co- you know, X number of copies of texts that they had that were, you know, put in libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt more like they were trying to, um, shut, you know, properly shut down the shop as it were rather than kind of open up a second propaganda campaign that would try to convince um, the nation that now that um, Black people were free, that they had to be fully enfranchised. And, yeah, you know, there was a war and, you know, there were freedom schools and, and, and many other political projects that they were doing um, that the media focus wasn't, wasn't really there per se.
1: That's a wonderful place to wrap up this book. We could talk about it for another hour because there's so much we haven't even touched on yet, but um, listeners will, will find the book and read more about um, how the American Anti-Slavery Society was selling anti-slavery. In the last few minutes we have left, will you tell us about what you're working on now? Sure.
0: Um, and this is going to sound like a huge leap, but I am working on um, contemporary climate fiction. And you say, how do you get from <laughs> the anti-slavery movement to contemporary climate fiction? Um, and I guess I would come back to that original question I was asking um, in this book, which is how, how do you create um, social change through culture? And when I was finishing this book, I was thinking... Um, about you know the kind of social movements that we need now, and um, climate change seems a crucial one and how we need a culture change in order to really deal with climate change um, or that's how I frame it um, when I talk to my undergraduates about this in my climate fiction class. Um, and actually, as I was finishing the book, there was a large um, kind of discourse starting to emerge about um, the climate movement invoking the anti-slavery movement as a model for itself. Um, So, I've just finished up a piece talking about that connection of why the climate movement um, is invoking the anti-slavery movement as a model and why that um, may be useful or may not be useful, especially given the kind of vexed racial legacy that I just talked about, that the anti-slavery movement left us with. So that's one piece. And then the second piece I'm working on is um, around this idea of the plantationocene, um, which is this notion that slavery's global expropriation of land and labor, people and plants was really um, the watershed moment in climate history. Um, so taking this notion of the Anthropocene and really trying to place it in history with this notion of it really occurring at the moment of plantation slavery. And I'm looking at how the slave narrative and then the contemporary neo-slave narrative records this long history of the plantation scene, as well as um, kind of encodes alternative ecologies of resistance and repair that might be models for us as we, we move into um, this um, moment of climate crisis.
1: So it's a big That's leap, <laughs> but That's I think funny. it has actual connections. <laughs> I think so, too. I can see, I can see it through mine. Um, I hope when it's done, you'll send it to me so I can have you back. Um, Teresa Gadu, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us not just about selling anti-slavery, but about the process of writing it, um, the research you did in the archives, how you managed your work-life balance as a mother and a scholar and a professor. It's been a really fascinating conversation. We've been talking about selling anti-slavery, abolition, and mass media in antebellum America. You're listening to New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. Please join us again.